So, Citizen Series. Uh, we, we've been looking at, as you, if, you're, if you are new, if you're one of the people who just recently turned up, um, or maybe you've just not been listening for the last several weeks, that's fine too. Um, we've been in this series called Citizens, looking at things like government and welfare and immigration and uh, life and death and justice and war and loads of those sorts of things, because what we're trying to do is help us as Christians think about what it means to be citizens. What? This is always what happens. I'm just going to wait. You start, to pre- you start to speak, and just half the congregation gets up and leaves in protest. Bye, guys. Thanks, Marlon. Nice to see you. Thanks for leaving. He's like the Pied Piper over there. Just, oh, they all follow him out. So very nice. Um, and anyway, this morning, one of the themes that we wanted to look at in this series, which is really trying to help us think about how to be citizens of earth as citizens of heaven. So what does it mean to play our part in society, to think through political issues and social issues in light of the gospel? And what we're going to be looking at this morning is, um, you know, three days after a general election in which we're just glad never to have to hear the word again, we're going to be thinking about economics would you believe? Economics. Now, I preached this in Kings uh, in Eastbourne two weeks ago, um, so the week before the joint celebration, so it's just before the election, and as I was driving in, I had turned on the radio, and I could hear um, Radio 4 saying, the, to- the Conservatives are making this week all about the economy, and I thought, no, it's going to look like this is planned, and then I looked, and I thought, I am wearing not even this shirt, which is kind of half blue, half white, I was wearing a bright blue to, you know, like kind of Amy Jeffrey kind of color blue sort of shirt, and I thought this just is going to give so many people the wrong idea. So I got up and I fell over myself apologizing for it, going, well, look, it's nothing political, it's just that I don't look very good in, I couldn't wear red or green or yellow or orange because I'd look really bad in those colors, I have to wear blue. And this woman in the church who does, does people's colors came up and collared me at the end. She started wagging her finger and saying, no, actually, that's the wrong color for you as well. You need, and she off, she went with these other colors. I thought, well. So I won't make that mistake again. I don't apologize for it. We're just talking about economics because it's a subject that we need to actually think at least wisely about and biblically about because it's an important way in which we love or don't love our neighbors. And it's something that most people probably on hearing it will think that's either very difficult or very boring or both. I imagine you just sort of think, I'm expecting dust to come out of his mouth right now as he starts talking about it. Um, and I just wondered if, I, I, I'm hoping to kind of change that tone a moment and just help us think through the issue of economics biblically, if that's okay. Um, and if you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 19? It's going to involve Luke 19, a little video clip, a potato, which I've brought with me to illustrate a number of things, um, and maybe even a stupid introductory joke. Um, here it goes. Okay, so three economists go hunting. And one of them fires his gun and misses by 10 yards to the left. And the other one, next one, fires his gun and misses by 10 yards to the right. And the third one puts his gun down and goes, I hit it! No, just no, 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 no interest at all. That's exactly what happened at Centro. In Hampden Park, they got it and laughed. I don't know why. Um, but you guys know, I'm, I'm with you on that. Anyway, I, I love, I knew you wouldn't laugh. I love economics. I used to be a management consultant and I read The Economist and I think it's really interesting. But I know a lot of people don't. And so I'm going to try and explain why I think it matters, why I think it's an issue about which Christians should have an opinion, rather than being one of those things where we say, no, 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 the Bible says stuff about how to become a, become a Christian and go to heaven when you die, and then the world can decide what they think about all of these difficult issues like money and stuff. And I don't think that's a helpful perspective, and I'm trying to explain briefly why that's true. So, you have, let's say that Seaford for a moment is a subsistence economy, which means that everybody in Seaford is only allowed to, effectively, you, know, you wouldn't enforce it, but let's say everyone in Seaford now simply grows on their own land what they need for their family to survive. 
So you have an allotment, and it may be not much larger than a standard allotment would be, and you have that bit of land on which to grow and cultivate every bit of food and shelter and anything else you might need for your family. Okay? That's a, a subsistence economy proper is you subsist your family on your land and everybody else subsists on their land. But that's one economic model. And to a point, some cultures in the world still live a bit like that. Um, and there's certainly many people in history have lived like that. So that's a subsistence economy. Now imagine you say, no, no, okay, well, we, don't, we don't like that idea. Now imagine you can have a market economy, which is where you say, well, I think the, the only thing that should matter is that supply and demand should set pricing. So if, if we have lots and lots of this item, and it's very easy to find that, but it's very difficult to find this item, this item costs a lot, and that item is very cheap because there's lots of it. And that's the only principle that works. Effectively, in a market economy, anybody can buy or sell anything for anything they want from anybody they want, and the only constraint is what it costs, which is a function of how many people want it and how many there are. So that's like a market economy in principle. Or, let's say another model is you have a command economy, which is where you say, no, 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 you can't have that because that causes lots of inequality. So what you do is everybody gives all of their money to the state, and the state says, right, now how, or it doesn't have to be the state, but it always is, and right now how are we going to apportion this equally so that everybody gets the same amount? The problem with, because they would say the problem with subsistence economy is people don't grow enough. The problem with the market economy is people don't share enough. So what we'll do is we'll make sure that Zoe and Deborah and Jez and everybody else have exactly the same amount as each other by gathering from them everything that they earn. Having, we obviously have to run a little government in the middle, and then we give it all back, but we give it all back equally. Well, that's more like the Soviet Union model of doing economics. And then fourthly, you have a lot of, you know, sort of you know, Europeans who say, um, I think it's an interesting mixture of the last two options. So let's do that. Let's have a mixed economy where you have some of the state hoovers it up and gives it back, and some of everybody just sets prices as they want. And can you see that of those four types, you have subsistence or market or mixed or command, some of those models are more loving to your neighbors than others. That's the, that's the only claim so far. That's just, there are some of those things will cause people to flourish better than others. And that's why I think economics is something worth just thinking about as a Christian. Um, so imagine that you now, you're back in Seaford as a subsistence economy. Everybody has an, has an allotment and grows a bit of everything. And then I want you to imagine that after a while, in fact, I'm going to put this down because it hasn't appeared in the story yet. Seaford doesn't grow potatoes, naturally. And neither does Eastbourne, neither does England, neither does Europe, right? Bolivia naturally grows potatoes. Apparently, that's where we found them and brought them back. But until now, we don't have potatoes. So it's just you guys, and you're growing a bit of stuff on your own land, and it is simply subsistence. And then somebody says, do you know what? I think we might all have a bit more to eat if I specialized in, in growing one particular type of crop and sold my crop to you, and what you did was specialize in growing a different kind of crop, and you sold your crop to me. I think that might be a bit more efficient, because I think what might then happen is instead of tilling little bits of land and using lots of different tools and lots of time chopping and changing between them, I will only grow tomatoes, and you can only grow corn, and you only grow wheat, and you only grow beans, and you don't grow anything at all, Zoe. You just scrub your land, you put grass in it, and you put a cow on it. And so you can then say, so you're taking a risk there, but in doing it, you'll find you're producing milk, which you can then sell on for other people. And they go, actually, by specializing, we've all got a little bit wealthier. We've all got a bit more to eat. We can actually afford to eat better as a family or have more children or whatever it might be. So you have a go from subsistence to specialization. And then the next step is somebody says, I'm going to take a risk in something that nobody's ever done before because I've heard of this thing called a potato. And I'm very excited about it. I think it's got a future. 
I've heard about it, and apparently when you eat a potato, it packs more carbs and more calories and more energy into a smaller space of land than you would get from growing corn or wheat. So I think the potato's got a future. And everybody else goes, don't be ridiculous, we never even heard of it. Somebody, you seriously telling me somebody's going to eat that? It doesn't look very appetizing to me. We know bread, we know rice, we don't know this. Go away. And you say, do you know, I'm still going to take that risk. I'm going to plant potatoes. I'm going to scrub everything else. I'm going to take a huge risk and invest my livelihood in growing something because I think that if I do, everybody will flourish more and I will make money out of it. And so he scrubs everything else and he plants a field of potatoes. And it turns out people do like potatoes. It turns out they do have a future. They, they do actually, you know, life expectancy goes up in societies which discover potatoes. There's a significant le- reason for the leap in European life expectancy when we found potatoes. Because it actually increased people's livelihoods. It made people live longer, made them healthier, because it was actually better for you, because you can get more carbs and calories for less effort. And so they did. And then maybe somebody else says, I'm now going to invest in this thing called a tractor, and I'm going to plow the field with this. I'm going to invest loads of money, and it won't pay back for years. But when it does... I'll have made myself more wealth, and I'll also have created wealth for everybody else. Society as a whole is better off if we have potatoes, tractors, cows. Sorry, that's really unfortunate, isn't it? I'm not going to gesture at you every time I say the word cow. Um, Please don't hear anything into that that I don't mean. But that's, again, that's another principle of a risk is taken and everybody wins if the risk pays off. And then actually, if the final, if you like, imagine those stages of progression, the final stage would be you pan back and it's not just that people in Seaford are specializing, it's that Seaford has a town specializes and says, do you know what, we're really good at growing this sort of thing, or building and designing this kind of thing. And over in Eastbourne, they grow, build and design something else. And down in Brighton, they build and design something else, and they're great at doing this. And actually, you need all that land up on the high wheel, up near, you know, near Tunbridge, that needs to be used for something else. And then you pan back again, and Britain is good at doing particular types of things. Nation of shopkeepers, which we still are, really, most of our... A lot of, awful lot of our income still comes through financial trade through London. And Britain's good at doing that, but my goodness, don't trust them with making, fill in the blank here, oranges, wine, or whatever. I mean, I know there's some good English wine, but you know, not a lot. And, and you don't trust them with that kind of thing. You have the French, let the French do the wine, but we'll make sure we look after the money. And make sure that the Germans build everything and make sure that the Spanish... No, I was going to make a remark, which I won't, um, because I, I've got to be very careful about these things. So, but you, find, you, you pan back and you find lots of specialization taking place. And all of those steps in the process, I think, will create, actually, overall, more wealth for human beings. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not something to go, oh, goodness, wealth, ugh. People making money, ah. It means that, actually, human beings as a whole are flourishing and actually kind of colonizing the earth in the way that we're supposed to. And obviously some of those things can be done in terrible ways and oppressive ways, we'll talk about that. But in and of itself, that process is probably good. And, each, and what it means is, here's my interesting, one of my interesting facts of the morning, that today, the poorest nation in the world, which is by, men, by many measures is Burundi, is wealthier by a whole bunch of measures than the richest nation in the world was in 1870, which was us. Okay, so Great Britain was the richest nation in the world in 1870. Burundi is the poorest country in the world now, and by many measures, including, would you believe it, life expectancy, Burundi now is richer than Great Britain then. In other words, in 150 years, the world has m- expanded in wealth so much that by an awful lot of measures, the poorest people are richer than the richest people used to be. And that's, in th- that's a good thing. That means human beings are, are actually doing part of what we're supposed to do and creating wealth and using our intelligence and our risk and our, f- and our assets to be able to create benefits for other people. 
That is all by way of why economics matters and just helping you think through what I mean by economics rather than statistical modeling and you know, the Financial Times kind of thing, which is not what we're going to be doing. Luke 19. I, want you, I, I think you might find it surprising to hear how Jesus spoke about some of these things in Luke 19. Verse 11. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten miners, one each. A miner is a unit of money. It's not a guy who works underground with a lamp in his hat. Sorry. Ten miners and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now this is a parable about business, which is being used to illustrate a broader point about looking after what God has given you. But please don't think that therefore it doesn't apply to business. It applies to everything. It applies to your time and your gifts and your money and other things too. But Jesus is using business as the illustration. So don't miss the application it has to, if you like, the economics. Uh, So he says, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him that he might know what they gained by doing business. So we've got three groups of people here. We've got the the king, We've got the delegation of people who don't want him to be king when they then disappear from the story until the very last verse. But then we've got these 10 servants who he's given a unit of money each. And he said, come on, I want you to do business and then come back and tell me what you did. What did you do with the money I gave you? The first came before him saying, Lord, your miner has made 10 miners more. And he said, that's a thousand percent return on investment. That's massive. That hardly any, that's like you invested in Apple in 1987 and nobody had ever heard of them. That's that kind of rate of investment. Almost nobody ever gets that, but they did. Right? This guy did. Ten, ten miners more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your miner has made five miners. 500% return. Massive. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord... Here's your miner, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you don't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servants. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then didn't you put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has the ten. And they said to him, Lord, he's got ten miners. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who hasn't, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, this is now back to the villains, who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Gosh, that's a heavy ending, right? It's one of those parables people read and go, oh, I don't really know what to do with that. And on they go, and they read on to the next bit. And there's much nicer parables in the Jesus' ministry, but actually it's a parable about stewardship. It's a parable about using well what God has given you and effectively making the most of it in a way that glorifies and honors him. So if people reject Jesus, then they are, in, in Jesus, at the very end, they are thrown into the, you know, brought here and slaughtered before me. But most of the story isn't really about the enemies. Most of the story is about the servants, some of whom do wise things with what God has given them and some of whom do not. Now, economics, as I say, that's not the only way to apply this parable. It's not just about economics at all. But it does apply. 
to our money. It, it would be odd to say, oh yes, you have to use your gifts well and your time well, but the parable's about money, so it isn't about money. That would be a very strange interpretation. I think it is about money as well. And if we apply it to money, you'll find three assumptions that we have that Jesus gives a bit of a punch on the nose. And, and my sense is, if, you, if I can put it this way, that in, our, in Christian circles, probably in Britain in general, there are three pantomime villains who get blamed for everything that goes wrong when it comes to money and the economy. Okay? Profit, credit, inequality. Those three things would somehow between them be responsible for everything that goes wrong. And this is true, whatever the, probably, whatever political system you subscribe to, whatever party you voted for the other day. These three guys, the, so profit represented, if you like, by chief executives who make lots of profits. Credit represented by the evil bankers who are obviously the villains of the piece because they are, you know, obviously they, they credit and they made us all have a crunch and all that stuff. And inequality represented, if you like, by just rich people. They have lots and inequality. And so Profits, credit, and inequality are like the three villains that people would think that's somewhere that's the problem. That's the, those three things between them account for this horribly oppressive, awful system that we have. Profit is seen as exploitation. Credit is seen as unsustainable. Inequality is seen as injustice. And I don't think any of those three things are how it comes across in this parable. In fact, I think Jesus speaks neutrally or even positively about profit, credit, and even, would you believe it, inequality in this parable. And that sounds so strange, I'm going to have to explain why I'm saying that. But I think, look, profit, the story is all about people who get given something and put it to work and then produce lots more wealth. That's making a profit, right? That comes off well in the story. Credit, I'm annoyed with you because you didn't put this on deposit with the bank and gave me interest. So credit in that sense, seems to, be, seem to come off well as well. Even inequality. One guy makes ten miners and another makes five, and as a result, they are given different rewards. So you think, he doesn't even seem to think inequality in itself is a problem in this story. So the assumption, I think, not necessarily the main point of the story, but the assumption underneath it is that neither profit nor credit nor inequality are actually bad in themselves. They can be. can be used for bad reasons, but they're not necessarily bad, and in fact, they can be good and even promote good stewardship. And as I say, that sounds odd, so I'm going to try and explain what I mean. Now, I think profit is good, generally. Profit is good. The reason is, profit is the payment that I get for the time, work, money, and risk that I put into an enterprise. And unless I am acting unjustly, which is obviously bad, and we'll do a sermon on justice later in the series, but unless I'm acting unjustly, it means I am being productive. So if I get make a profit, it's because I'm being productive. This guy who has one miner turns it into ten. How did he do that? He did it by putting his money and his time and his skill and probably a bit of risk all into the pot together and out of it came something useful for other people which they wanted to buy. So the guy who decides to buy a tractor makes profit because he invests, he puts risk and effort and skill and know-how and he piles it all together and turns it into something people want to buy. So if I'm making a profit and I'm not being unjust, it's because I'm doing something useful that other people want and that's a good thing. So go back and imagine Seaford is subsistence. Nobody's got anything except an allotment. And then somebody arrives from Bolivia with one of these and says, okay, I wanna, I th- let's try it out, let's see what happens. At this, when somebody comes up with the potato, at this point, everybody's looking around going, well, I, I'm, I, it might work, it might not, but I'm not sure whether I want to take the risk myself. 
until it takes somebody, John Clark, for instance, says, I'm going to, I risk it. Yep, okay, I, I trust, I know the land, I know how to find, I'm, I've got it. I'm going to go for it. Potatoes are us. And he starts setting up this thing. His risk is motivated by the idea that if potatoes are a success, he'll make more money. If you don't have that incentive to make the profit, he's probably not going to do it. He's probably going to think, well, the very best that happens here is I plow a field of potatoes and sell them and make no money at all. The worst that happens is I plow a field of potatoes, I don't sell them, and my family starves. That doesn't sound like a very good deal. I think I'll just sit on it, no potatoes for me, I'll stick with beans or whatever he's doing. And profit is the thing that motivates John to say, let's try potatoes. Let's put effort into something that is new in order to see if it works. And after a while, he's earned enough, as I say, to buy a tractor, and then he creates jobs. Productivity begins to go up because tractors make work quicker and easier. So the town as a whole produces more, and because the town's producing more, everybody's better off. So I think profit is good. Innovation is good. Productivity is good. Starting businesses is good. It's a way of loving our neighbor. It's a way of saying, I will find a way here. You know, it worries me sometimes when I, assume, when I hear people talking as if it's the government's responsibility to give somebody a job, and I'm going to just get angry if they don't. Now, it's fine to be employed by the state. Lots of people are. But actually, nobody, you don't enti nobody's entitled to be given a job by some big organization. Actually, jobs are created by people who start businesses. That's how you create jobs. Again, I'm always a skeptic when the conservatives say, we've created two million jobs. I think, no, you have not. You've created a tiny fraction of that number. In the few more people that you've employed in these roles, all of those jobs are created by entrepreneurs, business people who take risks. You might have made it easier for them to do it, but you haven't created them. They've been created by people in this church and many, many others who just start businesses and employ people. So I think profit's good. It incentivizes that. Credit can also be good. It can be bad can be neutral, but it can also be good credit. This man who, put his, who didn't put his money on interest with the bank uh, on deposit to get interest, Jesus, the master was cross. The master said, what are you doing? If, even if you couldn't be bothered to work, you could at least have put it on deposit. And the assumption there is, as I say, not the main point, but the assumption, you, can, you should have put your money on deposit in order to gain more wealth. That's okay. Now, credit has a bad name because it causes economic cycles. And so you have lots and lots of credit, and everybody's booming, and then everybody goes, whoa, we've overborrowed, and everybody's overborrowed, oh no, and everybody collapses, and you have a credit crunch, financial crisis, whatever you call it. Um, so I've just got a little clip here, which Tiago's going to put on, which just explains why that happens. I thought it was so clever, and 90 seconds long, I thought, this is better than I could do. So let's just, why does credit call cycles for those who are interested? Let's for a second imagine an economy without credit. In this economy, the only way I can increase my spending is to increase my income, which requires me to be more productive and do more work. Increased productivity is the only way for growth. Since my spending is another person's income, the economy grows every time I or anyone else is more productive. If we follow the transactions and play this out, we see a progression like the productivity growth line. But because we borrow, we have cycles. This isn't due to any laws or regulations. It's due to human nature and the way that credit works. Think of borrowing as simply a way of pulling spending forward. In order to buy something you can't afford, you need to spend more than you make. To do this, you essentially need to borrow from your future self. In doing so, you create a time in the future that you need to spend less than you make 
in order to pay it back. It very quickly resembles a cycle. Basically, any time you borrow, you create a cycle. This is as true for an individual as it is for the economy. Clever, right? That's good, there you go. Oh yeah, I understand the credit crunch now. Give me the job, George Osborne, go hang, I'm gonna do it, no? But anyway, now, credit, so it can, it can be bad. It has some side effects. Here's an example of bad credit. You buy something now that you can't afford now and you won't even be able to afford as a result of having bought it. So you buy your flat screen TV that's too expensive for your, your, your income, but you just think you want it. That can be bad credit because what that means is that later on, when you're trying to pay it back, you don't have the resources to cover it and you go into debt. But an example of good credit would be you don't buy the flat screen TV, you buy, say, a tractor as a farmer. And you go, I'm going to buy a tractor. Now, the reason why the tractor is different from the flat screen TV is because the tractor enables me to become more productive, which means I can actually make more money in order to pay back the debt that I've created. So the tractor makes me more efficient. Or, you know, you, you go, I'm a, I'm a photographer, so I need to buy high gear cameras. But in order to be able to do that, it's going to be pay it back. Or a tradesman buys a van. It's going to make me so much quicker and more productive that it will actually create wealth that will enable me to pay off the debt. In that sense, it can actually be a good thing. It's not necessarily bad. I imagine actually a lot of us in the room do that kind of thing, and I think that's fine. It's actually not just fine, it's, it's good. And interestingly, I just find it interesting that Jesus rebukes the man for not putting his money on deposit in the bank. But he commends the man for making profit. He doesn't commend the guy for saying, oh no, I'm not going to make any profit, and I'm not going to use credit either. Surely, however, profit, credit, surely inequality, surely that's wrong. Surely we can all agree, can't we, that inequality is an evil thing. No. Inequality is not necessarily an evil thing. The, this story, 10 miners, one guy makes 10, one guy makes 5, and we never find out what happens to 7 of them, and one of them buries it in the ground. But the guy makes 10, instead of Jesus coming along and saying, right, you've made 10, you've made 5, the 7 of you all made 1, say, and this guy, it's alright, we've got 22 miners now, between 10 people, so let's make, we can't have you having 10 and you having 5, that's in, unequal. So what we'll do is we'll rearrange it all, and Tony will have 2.2, Nicola has 2.2, Jane has 2.2, and so on. That's what we might think he should do, but that's not what happens. Instead, he actually kind of almost compounds the inequality by saying, you have made 10, you have put so much work and skill into this, you look to me like the kind of person who could now take charge of 10 cities. And so he actually if he like, confirms the inequality by giving him more than the guy who had five and presumably more than the guy who made one or none. Now, inequality sometimes exists because of injustice, because people are doing, oppressing each other. And that's terrible, right? I'm not for a moment defending that. We're going to, as I say, talk about that later in the series. But it might not exist because of in, I, injustice. It might exist because of gift. It might exist because people put more time into something, or because they work harder, or because they take more risk. It might not necessarily be bad. Obvious example, exam results. Let's say, are you taking exams this year? You're not, okay. Is anybody in here taking exams this year? No. Okay, let's, let's just, you're, you're pretending that you're not, but you actually are. But let's just say for a moment that everybody knew, all GCSE and A-level students this year knew that no matter what they wrote in their exam paper, they would all get the same grade. If that happened, you have absolute equality, right? If that happened, I suspect that some of them wouldn't work so hard. Not all of them. I'm sure there's a lot of students who are still going, no, of course I do. I see the value of learning in itself. But I reckon there might be one or two million um, who would decide that they weren't going to do it. And the reason is because actually inequality can motivate people to work hard. Can't it? I mean, that's just an obvious point when it comes to that. Now moving into the realm of money, and you see the same thing in the Soviet Union. 
is you say, actually, if you give everybody the same amount, no matter what they do, what you will find, even when the system's working properly, which in the Soviet Union it wasn't always, but even when it's working properly, everybody gets the same, but the result of that is that everybody has much less. Yeah? Because people aren't working so hard, because there's no motivation to. So actually, even inequality is not necessarily bad. It's not a good in itself, but it can, if you like, cause people to work hard and cause success. So, a long section there on what the three pantomime villains, profit, credit, inequality, they get, get blamed for a lot of things, and I don't think they're necessarily bad. Exploitation is bad, but profit isn't. Unpayable debts are bad, but credit isn't. Injustice is bad, but inequality isn't in itself. They're not the real villains. They're a smokescreen. They're a sort of, let's get in public debate and blame people and say, oh, yes, you know, chief executive with a 600,000 pound salary. We hate you, we hate you, boo, hiss. Oh, by the way, quite happy to pay for Sky subscriptions to watch footballers earn 10 times that, but we hate you. You know, it's an, it's, they're bogeymen. They're panto villains. They're not the real problem. The real problem, and by the way, I like football as well, so I'm just, you know, that wasn't a, I meant to be a dig. But the real villains are actually much closer to home. They're much more personal to us. The real villains when it comes to economics from a Christian point of view are greed, laziness, and envy. They're the three big problems, right? Greed, I want to have as much as possible. Right? That's, you can see that if you like. The, again, this really sounds like I'm out for footballers. The Russian oligarch thing where you go, right, got enormous amounts of land here, got some good political connections, keep the land, sell the oil, leave the country and buy Chelsea. That kind of greed thing, not good for the people that are in the country that gave you the land in the first place, probably, from what I can understand, right? That kleptocracy, that greed, I want to have as much as possible. That's, that's an evil, and that we have that. It's easy to see it in a very, very wealthy man, but some of the greediest people I know have some of the least money. It's not, greed is not just a rich man's thing. It's a, all of us probably wrestle with it. Greed is a big, that's one of the real villains, and it doesn't just apply to other people, it applies to us. Laziness. Right? I want to do as little as possible. Greed, I want to have as much as I can. Laziness, I want to do as little as I can. Some of you remember the 80s, where in the, in the peak of the sort of union Thatcher clashes, you had these famous characters, they become notorious, characters called ghost workers, who would work in organizations, say in the you know, printing or in the mines or whatever, they'd be ghost workers. The, what that meant was they didn't actually exist, and what they would do was the, the collective of workers would invent a person and then force the employer to pay money for not just the five people who are actually working there, but for these other two guys who weren't even real, and then they divide these two packets between the other five. And, and then the, and if the manager said, no, we're not going to do that, that's ridiculous, then they'd go on strike. That was not by any means always what happened, but it did happen. And that is, would be a good example of how laziness is actually a destructive thing. And you might say, that's ridiculous, that's appalling, but how many of us have been in a job where we thought, what I'm really aiming to do is to do as little work as I can here and yet still get the same amount of reward as other people. So there's greed, there's laziness, and then there's envy. Envy is not I want to have as much as possible or I want to do as little as possible. Envy is I don't want anyone else to have more than me. It's the, that's the heart of the soak the rich thing. It might be good tax policy, to, and I think it is, to ask ri rich people to pay a lot more taxes than poor people. I think that can make a lot of sense. And so I'm not objecting to that in principle. But when the heart behind it comes, they've got more than me, and I hate that, and I don't like you, and I don't like them, and I don't like the fact that they're rich, so I'm going to tax them out of, the, out of the country in order to be able to get their money so that they don't have more than I do, that's envy at heart. 
And that doesn't just exist politically. Again, it exists in our hearts, doesn't it? You look at other people, they've got more than you. Now, you, greed, laziness, and envy are actually the things that are real problems. And I noticed only after writing that, that section of the talk that all three of them appear in the Catholic list of seven deadly sins. Greed, envy, sloth, or laziness. And I was really interested. I thought, these are, it's been a long time. People have recognized how insidious and dangerous these three things are. That's the real problem, not the CEOs, the bankers, or the rich, who may struggle with the same sins, of course, but I might too. They're the, they're the real villains. So who are the heroes? You know, you've got your pantomime villains. No, let's, I don't think it's them. They're the villains, greed, laziness, and envy. Who are the heroes? Well, the heroes, which appear, are like the direct opposites of those three. The heroes who appear again and again throughout the scriptures. Generosity, diligence, and thankfulness. I think they're the heroes. They're the antidotes. They're the beautiful gospel-shaped antidotes to the three real villains. Generosity makes greed impossible. Because greed says, I want to have as much as possible, and generosity says, I want to give as much as possible. And it's very difficult to hold those two things in the same heart. Because as soon as I'm getting more, I'm giving more away. So if you say, if, when I've asked people who aren't from the UK, it's good to do this, um, Eastern Europeans, Africans, they move to Britain, and they're still very new, and they're still figuring out how Britain works. And you say, it's a good question to ask, what do you, if they're Christians, what do you notice are the things that British people, what are the sins in Britain that we don't even realize are there? Every culture's got them. You go to other cultures, you probably notice them. But when other people come to ours, one of the things that they always say, or almost always say, is there's just a lot of greed. And if it's true, and I think it probably is, that that's an endemic sin in this country, what's the answer? Well, the answer is generosity. The answer is say, I'm just going to have a heart and a lifestyle that's fighting sin by giving loads away. And that, incidentally, is why generosity is a big deal for us as a church. It's not primarily a fundraising thing. Because actually God provides everything we have anyway. And we could get lots and lots of just by asking God. He provides. The reason we talk about it is because this is a way of stamping out one of the most powerful sins we have. Or we're fighting, which is greed. So generosity is a great way of getting rid of that. So generosity re to replace, if you like, greed. How do you fight laziness? With diligence. I want to steward the gifts that I've been given. The time, the abilities, the intelligence, the labor, the education, the finance. The fact that I've... Many of us born in Britain, most of us British citizens, we have enormous privileges. If you have a passport, you might be interested, just go online and just Google power, how powerful is your passport. It is fascinating. There's a lot of people in the world whose their passport lets them into 40 countries. Mine lets me into all but two, I think. I don't remember why or what they are. It's more powerful than the Americans one. Just a British passport, I can walk almost anywhere. I've got such power by being British, by being educated, by being in a country with a welfare state where I can have two children with severe special needs and the government looks after them and gives me help and gives me benefits. And, gives me and so many people in the world don't have things like that. What's the way of responding to that? It's actually with diligence. It's to steward well the gifts I have been given in order to create wealth and serve the common good. How do I do that, given who I am, who God's made me? What's he given you? Diligence is the way to fight laziness, just putting those things to work in a way that will benefit others. And then finally, the way we fight, well, the way we fight envy is with thankfulness. We're just a thankful people. We just repeatedly tell ourselves and tell other people, look at the good things God's done for me. Yeah, there's other people who've got more in that area of life. Often, actually, they have less in another area of life. They might, they might be much less secure. They might worry much more than I do, or they might have much more difficult family lives because of the riches they've been. There might be lots of things, but even if there wasn't, 
even if some people are just flat out better off in some areas of life, in lots of areas than you, to give thanks all the time for what God has given me. And that, by the way, doesn't just fight envy. It also, thankfulness also fights the kind of grinding low-grade guilt that a lot of us find when we're experiencing something nice. So you stand there, you look at a sunset, you oh, I feel, oh. Just, I'm, am I supposed to enjoy this? Am I allowed that? You know, glass of wine. Oh, this is just delicious. Oh, no, I'm having a nice time. I must make sure that I feel bad about it because I'm a Christian. And so actually, thankfulness, just be, I hope that isn't your problem, but it might be. And actually, thankfulness, just saying the, the laughter of a child, a sunset, a really nice meal with friends, a glass of wine, those, or whatever it is for you, those things are meant to be things in which I delight and I say, Lord, I'm not greedy for them, but given that you have given them to me, oh, I really want to thank you and enjoy them. Oh, and by the way, I'm just going to also pray that other people experience some of the same blessings as I have, and if necessary, I'll work towards that as well. So I don't think our enemies are CEOs or bankers or rich people. I think the enemies are greed, laziness, and envy, and our friends are generosity, diligence, and thankfulness. And you only, if you, if you say, fine, so how do I get that? Come on, before I leave, tell me, what do I do? Well, the way you get those things is actually in and through the gospel. It's in and through considering what God has done for us in Jesus. And here's why. Because it repeatedly, the gospel repeatedly slaps us in the face with a reminder, this is all gift. All of it, boya, it's all gift. And it just shouts to you like that on a megaphone. And the reason why we sing the things we do and speak the things we do and listen to preaching and gather and we take communion and do the things we do as a church is because we are wanting to preach to ourselves all the time and have other people preach to us all the time. It is all gift. Everything you have has come from God as a generous gift of a loving father. And that means you won't have greed, you won't struggle with greed in the same way because you'll be thinking, none of this is mine. It's all been given to me, I want to give it away. It won't struggle with laziness in the same way. If God has given me this, I want to be as fruitful with it as I can because it's not really mine anyway. And it's going to provoke you to thankfulness and not envy because it reminds us, as Paul said so beautifully, what do you have that you didn't receive? Everything we have, the money, time, abilities, families, the gospel itself, it's all gift. It's all grace. And we are the ones actually in this story, as much as that punchline is troubling to some of us, in this story, that Jesus told, we are, as Christians, we are the ones who already have much, and to whom week after week after week, God promises to give even more. That's powerful, and that's the gospel. So let's just, maybe, we finish, do we finish without a song? We have past half a little, what do you want to do? We'll sing, okay. Do you want to just stand with me then? Sorry, I might have slightly overshot there, but... Let's just, let's just give, give thanks to God. Father, I thank you so much that this isn't just a story and it's not even just a, an economics lesson. It, it's a reminder, again, that the gospel is scandalous in the way it allocates gifts to the undeserving and that, that's the nature of the, the very richest in this room and the very poorest in this room. Well, for those of us who are surviving on benefits, those benefits are gifts from God. You give benefits to our family, that's a gift from God. For those of us who are extremely successful at work, and have been able to, all of that has come from gifts that you've given us, and assets you've given us, and education and skills you've given us. We don't have anything that we didn't receive, and we're so thankful that that's not just true in the material world, but it's true spiritually as well. We have been given every spiritual blessing, gift in Christ, and everything we have is gift from you. We are a thankful people, and we want to be thankful. We want to be generous and diligent, and we want to be thankful, and I am grateful for your gifts in my life. We are grateful for your gifts in our lives, and we celebrate that 
you have not only given us stuff, you've given us Christ. You've given us your Son who has reconciled us to God and given us every spiritual blessing in Him in the heavenly places. We love that. Thank you. Amen.